This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders. Order, order. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we talk about what made news, what didn't and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. Today I have with me, actually I don't have with me, but on a Zoom call I have Tanishka and Lasya, our in-house reporters. Uh... Thank you so much for joining me today and especially Thanishka, it's your day off uh, but you've agreed to come on the podcast with us so thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. And Lasya, you're right now in Chennai. Uh, no, I'm actually in Chittur. I've come to my parents' place for a day. So I'm working from here. Okay. So Tanishka, I'll actually start with you. So it's been close to 18 months since Omar Khalid was first arrested. He was named as one of the key conspirators in the violence. Uh, And I think his uh, name also comes under the FIR 59, which has been one of the most controversial FIRs since the anti-CA protest arrests began. And I think he was granted bail, if I'm right, in April 2021, but again denied bail in the under FIR 59, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. Correct. So, Tanishka, last week you did a report for us. It was titled Mastermind of Conspiracy, Why Omar Khalid's Bail Plea Was Dismissed After Eight Months of Hearings. Uh, I want to just start with some context. Can you tell me a little bit, like, how long have you been reporting on this case? Uh, when did Omar Khalid apply for bail and on what grounds? Right. So, like you said, he was granted bail in another case related to Delhi riots uh, in April 2021. He filed for bail for this case in July 2021. Um, I started reporting on it in September. So, the hearings have stretched really long um, in physical mode, in virtual mode. And um, what's been unusual is that this is this is just a bail case. Um, it's, it's still not gone into trial. So, for a bail case to stretch so long, it has... Uh, be a little, you know, people have been speaking about how this is not an ordinary uh, case, you know, that maybe there are some other reasons involved. Um, of course, FIR 59, as we've seen, is a really, really long um, charge sheet. So, uh, but for the judge to go through uh, the charges and not just the uh, whether or not he should be granted bail was a little unusual, but the decision and the order was not really surprising for most of us who have been following it. And we can get into that uh, more yeah. later. Yeah. So, I want to understand how many times have you, like you've been to court a couple of times, right? And generally, I want to get a sense of what is, do you see a change in like how there's, so I'm assuming there's a lot of reporters who come to court when there's Umar Khalid's bail hearing, uh, family and friends who arrive there. But with time, has that reduced? Like, is there a change in how people also have interest in the case? Right. So um, I started going to court. uh, And again, I've not gone for every hearing from October onwards. Uh, For Umar Khalid's hearings, there are more reporters compared to uh, the other accused in the same case. But it's not as many as you'd think. I was also initially surprised because uh, in the online hearings, there are a lot more because it's convenient and easy. People can log into several hearings at the same time. But there would be about two to three people consistently in all hearings. Uh, besides that, when once you start following the hearings, you know what's going to happen um, on a particular day. So, for example, uh, last week, uh, there were two days where the order was supposed to be passed. So there were around 10 reporters on each day. But otherwise, it's not more than like two, three, four, max five. And um, surprisingly, his family and friends uh, have not really been uh, attending the hearings as such. Because like I said, this is not really trial. This is just for pain. So that's another thing. Hmm. And uh, why did it take 
eight months uh, to decide on a bail order. I mean, I'm also curious because, say, under uh, the FIR 59, there have been about 15 accused, of which I think five or six are now out on bail. Uh, has this been an unusually long uh, hearing for a bail application or is has it been the same process for a lot of others who've got bail in this particular FIR case? I think it's been a long process for uh, most people. For this particular case, in his order, the judge also said that he called this a very hotly contested bail application. And he said that it took so long because uh, the defense and the prosecution had really gone deep into the charge sheet and the annexures. And uh, that is true. It was a very, uh, all the hearings have been rather colorful. Um, there have been a lot of uh, examples and the, uh, the case has been compared to several things, to several shows and even Umar Khalid has been called the veteran of sedition and it's been very um, entertaining in a way for people I think to read about it because um, if you hear a hearing, I mean if you're attending a hearing and it's about 35 minutes long but there's one line that really stands out for example, um, Khalid's lawyer once said that the, the chart sheet is like the script of family man so that is what people pick as headlines you know, I mean I think we are also guilty in that aspect so it gets a lot more attention and um, the hearings I mean if I think anyone who's attended court hearings understands that it's not really um, you get a date and then the argument happens on that date it has been deferred so many times not just the order there are so many days that we've gone to court and the hearing has just not taken place you know because of a lot of other logistics so um, that's something that really surprised me when I started attending this that how much time just goes into deciding when a case can be heard you know and for all this time for the fault of logistics or the number of cases there are, the accused is just lying in jail waiting for their case to be heard. So that's another something. So there's a line in your uh, report which actually speaks about these colourful statements that are being made by the prosecution, which the defence points out, the defence of um, Umar Khalid. And you say that there's been comparisons to the plot of Family Man and Harry Potter, the villain in Harry Potter. So how, how has this featured in Umar Khalid's bail hearing? So uh, during the arguments, the defense uh, brings this up. He speaks about how the investigating officer has the fertile imagination of a script writer of Family Man and how the charge sheet reads like, uh, you know, a screaming 9 p.m. debate. So I don't think these are arguments as such, but they um, are a part of the arguments. And like I said, this is what gets picked up and gets attention, even though it's not really what the judge is going to um, really take into consideration, I think, while making his decision. So he did say that all these, um, he didn't name them, but we can get a sense of what he's talking about. He said that this was um, unnecessary, but he also said that uh, the charge sheets mention of the adjectives that it uses, which I'm assuming are the adjectives it uses for Khalid, for example, calls him the veteran of sedition and the silent whisperer. Um, he said that those things were also not required. So there's, it is a very... Um, like I said, colourful charge sheet and uh, the hearings have been also rather colourful. I just want to bring in Lasya for a second. So, you know, Lasya in Delhi, this has been a very big conversation ever since the anti-CA protests. Uh, whether it's the hearing of Ishra Chahan, whether it's, you know, Natasha Devangna coming out uh, on bail. Uh, it's discussed a lot in Delhi and among the Delhi journalist circle, at least for sure. What is it like in uh, Tamil Nadu? Like, is there conversations about uh, any of this that happens there? Or is this seen as like a Delhi issue? It's completely seen as a Delhi issue. Like a lot of us are not even aware of the nitty gritty of these things. Um, we all know about the protests that happened. 
against the AA. We know, we knew that lives were claimed, but we don't know that you know like oh, it's just you know on the front page of the newspaper that the bail has been denied. Uh, not even in the front page in some papers. So that's all the awareness is. And I also had to do a little bit of reading to understand the integrity of it, to be honest. Uh, Tanishka, I just want to go back to your uh, story where there is a mention of Umar Khaled's thesis and the judge actually uh, uh, saying that, you know, you can't assess the bent of his mind through his research topic. Now, I'm just curious why even the research topic was part of this conversation. Right, so it was part of the defense's arguments um, for Umar's bail. Um, they mentioned the thesis and his other research papers. Uh, I think it was about um, Adivasi rights or something related to that. So the judge said that this cannot uh, be the basis of how we grant bail. Um, like you said, he said that it can't. it's not relevant while considering bail um, and you can't figure out the bent of his mind and just the charge sheet, uh, the facts presented in the charge sheets have to be taken into consideration, not what he's written about. So what I'm getting an understanding of is that um, who he was as a person or the kind of things he wrote about, we can't take that into consideration while framing the whether or not he should be granted bail. Um, it's so also what was the defense trying to uh, say? That what did, what, like him doing research on, say, an Adivasi community in Jharkhand, what does that reflect about Umar Khalid? I think they were trying to present the argument that uh, this is what he has done, um, this is the good that he has done, and this is the writings that he has done. So just, I think, because in a way, characterization does play into, uh, you know, hearings and orders, even if they say that it's not supposed to. I remember uh, the... So um, Khalid was part of some WhatsApp groups um, related to uh, Muslim students during the uh, formation of uh, the protests were being organized. And uh, there was this whole argument this one day about whether or not Khalid is an atheist, you know. Um, the prosecutor had said, I believe, that he's giving an impression of being an atheist, but he's part of these groups. So it really just goes into the integrities of a lot of things, which I don't know if would be relevant if the case wasn't as sensitive and um, did not have as many implications as this particular case does. So even if something is mentioned in hind, like in um, passing, it is sort of dwell into. So that's another thing that the judge said that everything was really sort of contested. I don't think there was anything that was not contested from either side. So it mm. just kept on going back and forth. Yeah, so I want to come to the speech that uh, is again being contested hotly in this particular bail application where there is a lot of focus on the speech that he made in Amravati, right? Uh, what was this speech and why is there uh, such a controversy about whether the speech has ever been heard in its entirety or not? Right. So I remember when the speech was uh, brought up during the hearings, it uh, became a whole thing because... Um, apparently, in the charge sheet, they have referred to News 18 and Republic's airing of the screen. And uh, these channels uh, don't have the original footage. They have got it from someone else, from a BJP IT cells tweet, in fact. So, Amit Malviya. Uh, right. So there was this whole uh, discussion about whether or not the speech should be taken into consideration, whether or not it was... Um, really what the channels made it out to be. But I think more on that will be decided during the trial. Uh, the judge also in this order has mentioned this very briefly because it's a part of a charge sheet. And I think uh, they will dwell more on it during the actual trial and uh, not much right now. But it is being used as evidence to prove his role as a conspirator. 
Right, it is. Right. And uh, I mean, that's, to me, that sounds fairly dangerous. Like if you cannot even find the entire speech in itself and put it in the context of what somebody's trying to say, but to pick out one particular sentence and then use that as key evidence seems to me like a dangerous trend that's being set. Right. I think when the cross-examinations happen during the trial um, and then the investigating officers will have to sort of, um, if not just these, if they have not just relied on uh, videos from these channels and if they have actual evidence, I think that that's when it will come out. Right now, since there's no cross-examination as such and just arguments presented for the, uh, to understand whether or not he should get bail. So uh, that's another reason that they couldn't go as into it, at least not as into the facts uh, more than this. Yeah. So just coming back to uh, this FIR 59 and UAPA charges, do we have a sense of why I think five, six people have been granted bail, right? So why have these five, six people been granted bail? And then there are certain people under the same FIR who have not been granted bail. Like, is there a reason why there's a difference in how each person is being uh, treated under the same FIR? Right. So um, even in the FIR, in the chart sheet, uh, Khalid has been called the mastermind of the con of the uh, conspiracy. You know, this whole case is about the uh, larger conspiracy that led to the violence where 53 people died and uh, all the properties that were damaged. So um, we've been thinking about, um, I mean, just fellow reporters, when we talk after the hearings, uh, we feel like if Khalid was granted bail over here, um, they would have to sort of grant bail to everyone because of the role that they have uh, made Umar, uh, they have made it out to be, right? They're calling him the mastermind. So if they grant him bail, it's gonna, they're gonna have to give it to everyone. So I think the writings were on the wall because just 10 days before, uh, Ishra Jahan, who's a co-accused, was granted bail. And in the order, in the order, the same judge said that um, she had not created the idea of Chakka Jam and she was not part of uh, incriminating WhatsApp groups. And uh, since we've been hearing the arguments, we know that um, Khalid has been accused of being a part of these WhatsApp groups, even though in his in the order for Khalid, the judge said that, you know, the defense does have points about how um, Khalid did not send many messages and the ones he did were not very provocative, but he was still part of these groups. Mm. And there is a lot uh, about the Chakka Jams also. So um, it was very obvious when that order came out 10 days before Khalid's where the case is going to go. So Right. And uh, last year, did you have any questions for Tanishka? Yes, yes. So, uh, Tanisha, it was it was very entertaining reading that story. You know, like uh, it felt like a Rajamouli's narrative. The words uh, "silent uh, whisperers" or "veteran of what is that? Veteran of sedition." I really enjoyed it, and uh, I just have like one question. Like it says, like Khalid's lawyer has says that the prosecution equating a Chekka jam with a terror act was not accurate, since a Chekka jam is not an offense and is in legitimate form of protest so first of all chakka jam the word itself was new to me and like, i just wanted to know when does a chakka jam become an offense legally right legally i am not sure if i can give an accurate answer but or uh, generally yeah so i think the defense's argument was also this that chakka jams have been used as part of protests in so many years by so many different political parties you know so um, it's not really a new concept but according to the prosecution the way that it was used here um with the intention of things escalating um they they think that this constitutes as um a, you know it is they're holding it against them and they think that it was intentional 
there are some messages they were referring to as well where they had plans to escalate the chakka jam so again they use they're finding these words and they're using them to uh, further arguments to say that this was not an ordinary chakka jam and the defense is argument that chakka jams are uh, a normal part of peaceful protest in a democracy uh, they cannot stand according to the prosecution So from my understanding in that I don't think that legally I don't think there's anything you can you know hold against a chakka jam it's a peaceful protest it's a gathering of people but from my understanding from Tanishka's story the prosecution sees the chakka jam as a starting point as a trigger and as okay. a place where conspirators came together and almost like instigated it and then it led to riots if I'm understanding ah. it right Tanishka Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. So they are really holding the fact that they wanted to escalate the chakka jams, yeah. and uh, that these were planned. They have been saying that these were all uh, pre-planned and not in the moment. Um, a lot of things about uh, Shaheen Bagh and um, how it was also planned, and you know, women were brought to the protest sites, and it was made to seem as a, a woman-led protest when it was in fact not. Which again, I think they'll go more into during the trial. Hmm. There was just a little mention of it in the order. So, but yeah, you're correct. Right. So, uh, sorry, Lassia. Did you have another question? No, no, no. I just had like one last question. Like you have mentioned that his co-accused was granted bail, but he was not, and the reason was that he was. Uh, it was the court thinks that he's part of the conspiracy. Is that the only reason, or are are there any other? Aspects right. to it. So I think a lot of them were uh, have been part of this large of this case, which is for the larger conspiracy behind the Delhi riots. But uh, Khalid has been held as the mastermind of this, and I would like to think that his reputation also. This is um, he's been in the limelight of in the past few years because of the things he has said and done. So um, there is a pu- public perception also of who Umar Khalid is. So in a way, I think it is easier to um, again. This is not something that um, the court has said, but I think it's easier to um, hold someone like him responsible uh, than it is for certain other people. And again, it's they say it's uh, based on the charge sheet, and even in the charge sheet, Umar has been given more significance than certain others. So I think that's something that they've looked into as well. I think also from my understanding, like if Umar is given bail, like the entire FIR fifty nine might fall through because if they're trying to hold him as a mastermind, then all the other fifth, like one, it's like she said about setting precedents. Like once Umar is released, then there is not much ground to hold anyone else accountable in that charge sheet, as per how they've constructed Umar to be. Um, in this, but uh, thank you, uh, Tanishka. And uh, really, if you want to read her story, she's done multiple stories. This isn't the first one. I think there are about five, six stories. You can find it on the website. So last year, last week, you did a story titled "Tamil Nadu's Temple Trouble." Non-Brahmin priests say they're being sidelined and harassed. Uh, personally, I found the story extremely fascinating because I think uh, the understanding of caste and how it manifests in uh, places like Tamil Nadu, Kerala, are very different. Also, and in in certain nuanced way in how it functions in the north or in places like Delhi or Uttar Pradesh. And um, this particular story really touches upon very interesting aspects of also how the state opines. About caste um, within um, the functioning of society. So, in your story, you do mention it starts actually. The whole story starts when Stalin, M K Stalin, the Tamil Nadu Chief Minister, made an announcement last August that thirteen non-Brahmin priests would be appointed to various temples across the state. I want to start by asking you, where, why did Stalin feel that this was such an important and radical, as you call it, uh, step to take? 
Yeah, so basically it is one of the poll promises of Stalin when he was uh, campaigning. But to give you the history, it all started in 1970 when Periyar, who thought that you cannot abolish religion, was he, he actually thought it would be wise to include non-Brahmins also in the temples to practice religion. Um, so when it started in 1970, so to give you a context, Periyar started the self-respect self movement in Tamil Nadu and DMK associates with the ideologies of uh, Periyar. So it all started in 1970 and he was protesting uh, to include non-Brahmins also in temples um, as priests. And that's when Karunanidhi had given, you know, he had uh, amended an act and said that hereditary uh, priesthood would be abolished. Like, if I'm a priest, my son can also be a priest, right? That's how it works in temples. So, but according to the act, it's abolished. And he had also promised to take measures to include non-Brahmin priests. And uh, and over the, after that, after in the in the following uh, 30, 40 years, a lot of things have checked, uh, happened. This act of uh, Karnanidhi was challenged in the court. But once the Supreme Court has given an order that it can be done, non-Brahmin priests can also be included, but by following the agamas, but but following the culture, the respective agamas of temples. That's when uh, Tamil Nadu came up with a committee that traveled across the state, studied about it, uh, got experts' views, and they have you know they have actually passed a government order saying that non-Brahmin priests can also be included, but be, but they will be trained to do so. You know, mm. an eight, eighteen month course was introduced, and uh, and right candidates were, were trained, and that's how some two hundred odd uh, you know non-Brahmins were trained 10, 13 years ago, and but they were not appointed. They'd been fighting for it. They they were working in private temples. They were like some some of them switched the professions also. Some of them made a subject of ridicule because uh, you know like when Dalit pre, Dalits had actually enrolled in the course and they were even passed out and didn't get a job, they were a subject of ridicule ridicule in their neighborhood. So that's you know considering the uh, misery they have gone through. It's a radical move that Stalin have appointed 23 non-Brahmin priests. There are more to go. 170 more people should be appointed from the 2008 batch. I'm just curious, you know, is abolishing caste system or addressing the issues of caste a part of the manifesto for DMK? Or is this particular move by Stalin more about realizing Periyar's dream? I think it was more about realizing Periyar's dream and also realizing the dream of 170-odd you know, 200 odd non-Brahmin priests who had been meeting Stalin when he was up, when he was in opposition also. They had been meeting Stalin and they uh, actually pinned their hopes on the DMK government because the AI DMK government, even though the Supreme Court had ruled against it, stating that they can be uh, non-Brahmin priests, should be appointed. Uh, the AI DMK government had only appointed two priests for the namesake and they had not reopened the Archaga training schools. So these priests actually pin their hopes on the DMK government because the DMK government associates uh, with the ideology of Piriyar in, in a few issues like women rights or uh, I would uh, they, they don't think caste abolish, uh, abolishment of caste is feasible, but they're taking measures, you know, step-by-step -step measures to include everyone into the system. No, I'm in, what I'm really interested to know is if, you know, Stalin is going after the issue of caste or going after realizing a Periyar dream. So, 
in this whole thing where there is an attempt to make it look like addressing caste issues, does the DMK government actually function in that way with res- with regards to caste in other aspects? I'm not with regards to caste in you know society with how people are treated with residents, um, or is this merely like a move to say that we are trying to realize Periyar's dream? Like, is there a co- like an irony there? Hmm. I think it's more like realizing Periyar's dream. Uh, because uh, their DMK government is has been helping out. Uh, I think they are more into class than the caste right now. There have been there are a lot of subsidized schemes for poor people, but not about not there. You know the focus has not been on caste but class, according to me, I would say. And this particular thing has been uh, you know like one of the main poll promises, and uh, Stalin has realized it. Hmm. It would be too early to say that he's doing it or not. Hmm. And so of these twenty-three uh, non-Brahmin priests, uh, what are the what is the kind of caste uh, groups that are present among the twenty-three people? Like, are there uh, what are the different caste groups that are present? Yeah, there uh, there are Dalits, there are uh, there are backward caste, other caste OBCs. So all of them included in the twenty-three people. I think there are five Dalits among the twenty-three people, hmm. and uh, different sects among. Each category, like among backward caste, also I didn't know that there's so many sects in one caste. Also, like in backward caste, the one of the priest was from a caste of Draupadi. That's what he told, hmm. and he had to face a lot of discussion for that. Like the the Brahmin priest actually, you know, placed the burning fire on his palm and said, "You purify yourself. You are from." you know, cast of Draupadi and Draupadi had also entered the fire. I don't know how much of it of that is true. I have not heard about Draupadi entering the fire. But uh, yeah, the, the Draupadi had entered the fire to purify herself. So you belong to the cast of Draupadi and you, this is your way of purifying. Mm. You know, like uh, apparently there are so many sects in one camp. In, in BC also there are so many sects and the discrimination changes from each sect. I didn't go into those details in the story. And so... Bringing coming to the crux of your story, you're saying that a lot of these priests, especially non-Brahmins, are being uh, sidelined and harassed. Um, in what forms are these happening? Like you give us one example of uh, of you know uh, lack of purity being an issue among other priests, among Brahmin priests when they interact with these non-Brahmin priests. So what are the other kind? In what ways are they being sidelined? Um, so it's very subtle in a few temples where the Brahmin priests do not interact with the non-Brahmin priests. Mm. And it is understood that they do not want to talk to you. And uh, they wouldn't even invite you. Like when there is crowd, you need help. Even then they would call their friends, not the non-Brahmin priests in the temple to perform Abhishekam or, you know, some other ritual. So in this one one particular temple, this happens. So the non-Brahmin priests get the point. And so they do not want to, uh, you know, uh, protest to get into the inner sanctum, even though that's their job to do. That's also their job to do. Mm. I, but in other places, it's so direct. The discrimination is where, uh, you know, the Brahmin priests treat them like watchmen, give them uh, work, you know, odd jobs like plucking the tulsi leaves or asking them to work in another temple which is away from the uh, village. And this is also economically connected because, as per, you know, these pre- most of the this job, you know, the salary of this priest are not consistent. Some priests get 
15,000, 16,000 a month, some get only 2,000. And you have to rely on the money on the plate, you know, that you get from the devotees. So when you are not allowed to enter the inner sanctum, you're also indirectly denied the money. So that there's so many other issues to it. Um, so the discrimination is direct in some places and subtle in some places. Has there been a redressal mechanism? Has there been like somewhere that the non-Brahmin priests can actually go to and uh, seek help from? Yeah, so every temple will have an executive officer of the HRNC department. Uh, they could, they can actually go there and complain. So they did complain to the executive officers uh, when that, you know, there was no change after that. So they, they also complained to the HRNC officials. Uh, they also complained to the minister who had come to the temple. In one case, the non-Brahmin police actually thought the minister had come to see how things are moving there, you know, happening there. But the minister had just paid a you know, visit to the temple. The, the non-Brahmin priest, however, went to the uh, minister and told that this, uh, you know, that this is what is happening, that they are not even entered into the inner sanctum. They're only allowed to do work in the sub-temples of the temple, but not to the main deity as per the government, you know, as per their job profile. So the minister had also told the executive officer who had, you know, said that they would rectify the issue. The next day, um, the executive officer and the, and the Brahmin priest had uh, asked non-Brahmin non priests to, you know, perform rituals outside the inner sanctum, you know, light diyas and all that, took some pictures and sent it to the executive, uh, sent it to the minister, you know, HRNC priest, P.K. Shekhar Babu. And after that, it was all back to, you know, discrimination again. So complaints were made, executive officers were also warned, but consistent you know a permanent solution was not so there's been a legislation which is obviously quite radical that the statement made and the statement made by stalin being quite radical there is a redressal mechanism in place but you're saying that there is no way to really check whether this is an ongoing practice whether there is safeguards in place for non-brahmin priests right uh, there can be a way, actually, you know, like uh, all the executive officers, it's it's in the hands of executive officers and they should actually play a major role. And the HRNC department officials should, uh, you know, maybe have biweekly a call once in a week to check how it is going. And not just the executive officers, maybe they can ha have a call with all the 23 of 23 mm. priests mm. once in a month to listen to, the, listen to their uh, miseries and the discrimination. That that will be the way forward. Or uh, these priests, non-Brahmin priests are also suggesting another idea of having a committee which will look into these issues because it's, you know, untouchability is deep-rooted in our societies and it is not, it cannot go in one day or one, you know, with one move. So it has to, you know, it, one of the non-Brahmin priests told that it's a victory. He sees the appointment as victory and he also, he knew that these sort of issues would come so he's prepared to de deal with it. But uh, there are also other priests who quit, who didn't want to be in it, you know. So, so how many priests have changed. now, I mean, it's clearly affected their morale. And how many priests, uh, I think you spoke to 10 of the 23, right? How many priests in total have quit now? Non-Brahmin priests. One has quit for sure, like he has quit two months ago. The other priest is considering to, you know, uh, considering to resign from the job, but he's also uh, requesting the HRNC department to place him in a temple where there are no Brahmin priests. So the, the talks are going on. So they feel it would be another way to deal with the issue. When there are no Brahmin priests in the temple, the discrimination would be less. So as of now, uh, uh, as per the records, only one priest has, has quit. But uh, 
of the 10 people i told they are very discouraged they are like they want to check how it goes for another year and uh, other one year and they want to uh, you know decide they are moving towards uh, resignation and are there but they will take a call after were you able to reach out to any brahmin priests uh, who spoke about how they do not enjoy this practice of non brahmin priests coming in or who are actually more vocal and supporting non brahmin priests in helping them become more of an integral part in the rituals i did try to talk to two brahmin priests but they were not willing to speak but i did uh, i read the affidavits of the petitions filed by these groups challenging the appointment so it they were quite exhaustive and they say that rituals of the temples are very important and that god will only like it when one sect of people you know uh, are in the inner sanctum that's what the petitions have actually you know mentioned and that was that's quite surprising uh, alarming indeed right thank you so much lasya i really urge everyone to take a look at this story it's very nuanced and very fascinating how this has been functioning and clearly also shows that uh, legislation or legal action is not enough to actually abolish a lot of the practices that we have in society and there's a massive social change that's required for any of are good uh, legal changes to even function um before i let you go uh, lasya and tanishka i want to ask about your recommendations so lasya what is your recommendation for our uh, listeners this week ha so i would uh, recommend this netflix series called the outlander it's based on a book from outlander by diana diana gabaldon so it's about how love remains uncorrupted even through centuries of time travel and uh, The series actually weaves science fiction, drama, adventure, and history together into a almost perfect watch. So it's for a light watch. Uh, and uh, when it comes to books, I would like to recommend a Telugu book that I've just completed reading. It's from the 1960s. the The title of the book is Kala Tita Vyaktulu. It defines, uh, you know, the 1960 United Andhra Pradesh and how people actually lived at. that time it's a quite quite a revolutionary book by dr shri devi and uh, it's in a nitigritty it's like two different women face similar situations in their lives and uh, the book deals about their approach towards life so mm. it was quite revolutionary considering the fact that it was set in 1960s right uh, so tanishka what is your recommendation for our listeners this week Um, so there's a story on AP called Why 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 Ukraine's Mariupol Descends into Despair. So um, it's a really beautiful, strong, heartbreaking story. I think AP has been one of the organizations that has international organizations that have been on the ground in Ukraine uh, ever since um, the crisis started a month ago. And the story really pieces together the things that they saw. Um, it's important, I think, to document the things and also document how they are documenting these things. And um, it's put together. in a really beautiful manner so i would recommend this report all right thank you i would like to recommend a particular story that i read in the new york times uh it's called i don't have the right to cry ukrainian women share their stories of escape it's um it's it's a story where a lot of women now from ukraine are actually leaving and escaping and their men are staying back so women and children have to escape the war and this particular story is uh, largely written in first person where the author uh, sabrina tavernese if i'm saying her name right has really documented these stories in first person and 
I think the art has been in how well it's curated. Uh, so it's a it's a very heartbreaking read, but such an important story to really have on paper. Sometimes in these situations, I think there's a lot of analysis and geopolitical conversations happening, but just these human stories make such a big difference to how we will understand the war years from now. So listeners, that's it for now. If you're listening to our podcast on any other podcast platform, that is Apple, Stitcher or Spotify, do know that we have our own podcast player on newslaundry.com. And if you haven't subscribed to us, you also know that we do more than just podcasts. We do reports, we do video interviews and ground stories. So do go check them out. And if you like our work, subscribe. It's a small red button on the top right corner of the website and you can pay to keep news free. That's it for now. With that, this podcast is adjourned. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.